We will be in a second. There we go. Sorry about that. Yes, <clears throat> let me say that so it can be recorded. If you were here for a while, we also are glad you're here. Um, so, yes, good morning, uh, and please turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you uh, need a Bible and there's not one around you, please raise your hand and somebody will bring you one. About a year and a half ago, uh, year and a half ago our church decided to enter into a partnership with the Episcopal Diocese. And as far as we knew, a partnership like the one that was proposed had not been tried before, and if it had, there were certainly no textbooks telling us exactly how to go about doing it. New Hope began as a church when it was planted by Grace Fellowship in 2003. Grace was and is a large non-denominational church that grew out of the Fellowship Bible Church movement of the late 1970s. While the culture of New Hope leaders has always sought to live each day listening for the guidance of the Holy Spirit rather than the wisdom of our own ambition, it did become clear within the first few months that New Hope did not look like it was going to become Baltimore's next megachurch. Still, our elders prayed through what God would have us be. What was God calling us to be? And in time, a culture developed that was dedicated to expositional preaching and tight-knit community and small group discipleship. While we, while we knew that things such as Bible study and prayer and service and relationships were, were things that all churches were called to do, we, we also wanted to be faithful, as faithful as possible to, be, to, to what God was calling us uniquely to be. And there are libraries full of books on how to plant churches. Um, and many of those books were read by our leaders. However, no book was ever written telling New Hope exactly how to be New Hope. That was a story that we needed to live into. And one of the initial ways we did it was to work through Paul's uh, letter to the Jesus followers gathered in Corinth. And, in, and so, in light of our partnership with St. Hilda's and the new opportunities given to us by moving our operations to here in Catonsville, we thought it appropriate to study it again. Still, almost 14 years into this story, we continue with the mission to live into God's faithful provision. One of the things that has always uh, appealed to me about non-denominational churches like New Hope and Grace Fellowship is that we have the freedom to be what we believe God is calling us to be. We have the freedom to pray this way this week, and, and then we'll do it a little bit different next week. Next week, we'll do something else. We have the freedom to use this tool from the Episcopal Church. Um, like this morning, we, we, I, I, that was my manipulation of the prayers of the people that Jason includes in the Episcopal prayer service. Uh, I, I kind of manipulated it to kind of fit our needs, and, Grace, and, and Rachel did an incredible job praying through it and reading it for us. Um, but that was a tool that I chose to use out of the toolbox. And then next week, we might borrow something from a Methodist hymnal. I don't know. At, at times, we're going to lead on doctrines that actually sound very Reformed, uh, such as our commitment to Scripture and our commitment to justification by faith alone. At other times, we're going to champion those works of, of scholars and, and church leaders like N.T. Wright and, and Peter Enns, who are helping the church at large gain a better perspective of what faith means for the 21st century. We do all of this in an attempt at mature, Christ-centered discernment, prayerfully thinking through what God would have be the values of our congregation. And of course, we're, we're still in that process. Now that we've finished our first year here, we, 
we may have gained a bit of perspective on what it looks like to do ministry here in Catonsville. Perhaps now more than ever, we have an opportunity for us to all examine what sort of church we'd have New Hope be. All of this we do humbly in Christ, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. See, unless God is at the center of all of it, we should just pack it up. Our mission is the expansion of the gospel. We're still tasked with living out that great commission from Jesus to go and make disciples. How we do that requires that we consider the context in which we find our church, the context in which we find our families, ourselves. And my personal prayer as a pastor from, for the church, for New Hope in 2017 that 2017 would be a time for each of us to speak into that shared mission. We are a congregation of great potential, one congregation with various different people from various different backgrounds and gifts and passions, all with the same mission, and together we can ask, what, the gospel, what does the gospel require, from us, require of us here and now? The advantage of being a non-denominational church is that we have great freedom. And last week we heard the Apostle Paul say a really remarkable thing. He warned Corinth to take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In another one of Paul's letters, he tells Jesus' followers that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You see, we were born into the bondage of sin, yet with Christ's death on the cross, we were given true liberty. In Romans, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified in him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You see, here's the really neat thing about what Paul thought about liberty. He knew that Jesus had it. Jesus had a lot of it. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus holds all things together, all things, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things things whether on earth or on heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. Liberty, authority, freedom, power, kingship. Jesus personified those words, and then he went to the cross for you and I. What does holy power look like? What does holy freedom look like? What does holy liberty look like? It looks like the cross. It looks Um, Like the one who was in very nature God, emptying himself, taking the form of a slave, humbling himself to utter obedience, even the obedience of a torturous, bloody, humiliating, painful death on a Roman cross. You want to know what it looks like when God's power is on display? Look at the cross. Yes, says Paul. In Christ, forgiveness and freedom are available to you and I. But be very careful that this freedom does not turn into a stumbling block for others. Because the restoration, reconciliation, and redemption of the cross was definitely not just for you and me. It was for the entire creation. 
The question is, now that we have this freedom, what do we do with it? If we are called to imitate Christ, and we are therefore called to conform to the image of the crucified Christ, we are called to pour out our lives sacrificially to others for the glory of God. Jesus whittled it all down to one simple word, love. So even when Paul is going to reference very specific things in chapter 9 in his Corinthian discourse, his primary question to the church, and if to the church in Corinth, and if I might be so bold, to the church at New Hope, would be what are the requirements of love in your life and in your situation? Andy Stanley puts it like this. He says, what does love require of you? As Scott talked about last week in chapter 8, Paul is talking about food sacrificed to idols. Evidently for some, um, it was too close to the way that they had lived before they met Christ. Sure, it's just meat. I know that and you know that. But for some, it's a stumbling block. Paul says, if food is causing their, follow it, their falling, I'll never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Because as awesome as steak is, and believe me, I love steak, the gospel is worth it. But that church came out of a particular context in the first century world. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates the first verses of chapter 8 like this. He says, we sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kinds of questions, but sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. For Paul, it took him wrestling with the question of requirement and knowing that the choice he needed to make, he made for the glory of God and for the expansion of the gospel, even if it cost him something. Or maybe let's hit something a little bit closer to home. Scott talked about this a little bit last week. Sure, for some of us, it might just be a beer after work. One beer never hurt anybody, but you and I both knows that for you and I both know that for others there's no such thing as just one beer. So in certain contexts, for us to flaunt our freedom in a way that may lead others to stumble would be an irresponsible way of living out the freedom that we have in Christ. In the words of Paul, you wound their conscience when it is weak, and therefore you sin. But I know what you're thinking, because I was thinking the same thing. Well, now, are we to live in legalistic fear? Are we to live our lives afraid that anything and everything we do might turn into a stumbling block for my brother and sister? No. But we are called to be present in the moment in which God has placed us and ask that question, what does love require of me? You see, I just broke a rule, and I did it for a reason. Normally, I begin sermons by inviting you into the text that we're going to study for the day. I did say, turn with me to verse chap, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but I haven't really talked about the text yet. I might, you know, usually tell a brief story, and then I launch right, try to get into the text. Like most of the, the books tell you, you really need to get in there like the first five minutes. But today, I thought it was important for us to do business with the context of the passage, um, the context of chapter 8, the heart of chapter 8, before we moved into chapter 9, because it would be a mistake for us to assume that Paul has finished his discourse on what is at the heart of the whole food sacrifice to idols thing. The heart of that question and the heart of the thing that uh, the, the content of chapter 9 is what does love require? You got freedom? Great. What are you going to do with it? 
How are you going to use it, church? But, chapter 9. This is Paul. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I'm apostle to you. For you are my seal of the apostle of my you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Well, sure you might say Jesus had freedom, but he had that whole God incarnate thing working for him. But here Paul's saying, "Hey, hey, I'm an apostle. I've personally experienced an audible call from God to be his man. Not only that, Paul planted. He, he fathered the church in Corinth. If anybody has sway over them, if anyone should, you know, has the right to throw their weight around and be the boss, it was him. After all, he was their founder. The church in Corinth was his seal of apostleship in the Lord. This and the text that follows it are all about apostolic rights. But remember the heart of what came just before it. Paul is going to spell out these rights and then do something with them. My New Testament professor, Dr. Gorman, puts it like this. But the whole purpose of Paul's assertion of rights is to show that he, like the Corinthian elite, had legitimate rights that could be deliberately suppressed as an act of cruciform love and ultimately of true freedom. For a moment, Paul is going to step aside from the discussion of meat sacrifice to idols. He's going to get back to it later. And he's going to speak about how his rights as an apostle and about a particular choice that he has made in regards to the renunciation of those rights. Picking up in verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to our food and drink? Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? You see, Paul has made a choice to not collect payment from the church in Corinth. But before he can talk about why he's made that choice, he wants to make it crystal clear that he actually has every right to expect that he would be paid for his services. He's also going to make brief mention of the fact that he has every right to be accompanied by a believing wife. Oftentimes, traveling missionaries were accompanied by their wives, and it stood to reason that they would be compensated in light of that commonality. And this is only briefly mentioned here and. Honestly, we've spent enough time talking about how that exactly doesn't particularly apply to Paul, so I'm just going to move on. Um, but the, the connective tissue with the previous chapter is that rhetorical question, do we not have the right to our food and drink? Then Paul is going to come at the argument from several different rhetorical angles. First, he's going to consider the Christian leadership angle. Evidently, it was normal for the other apostles to collect compensation for them and their families. It's not that the rights are different for Paul and Barnabas. No. no. Of course, Paul has the right to be paid for his services. Just because he chooses to not receive support doesn't mean that he lacks the right to do so. All things being equal, he does have the right to be, paid, uh, to be a paid apostle. Then he's going to consider what some might call the common sense approach, picking up in verse uh, 7. Who at any time pays the expenses for doing military service? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not get any of its milk? Um, so this might be the common sense approach, meaning A, um, you should expect to get paid for the work you do. 
B, if the work itself costs resources, it's understandable that you would be compensated for that cost. And C, it's reasonable that you would expect, as appropriate, to taste the fruit relevant to what you're doing. So as part of my job as a pastor, I have to read a lot. I have to spend a lot of time not only in the Bible but in devotionals and articles. It's appropriate for me to engage in faith-based conversation at any point in my day. And much of this is very edifying, not only to the work that I'm doing, but also, of course, to my soul. I'm a better person for having studied 1 Corinthians 9 this week. I got to read commentaries from all these great scholars and hear sermons on it. Like, I'm a better person for having struggled through that or having wrestled with that. But it would be silly for me to try to separate my own private devotion um, from my professional study completely, one will obviously complement the other. And truth be told, it's one of the benefits of doing this type of work. Uh, a few months ago, I told you about a fishing trip that I went on. I told you about how there was this guy who was running around nonstop uh, the whole time we were on the boat, and he was reeling in the lines when other guys got tired, and um, he was tearing, he had to tear down the whole operation on this fishing trip. So every time we moved the boat, he had to tear it all down and put it all back up. It was exhausting, and he was constantly working. So the dude was ripped. It wasn't his job to work out. He obviously reaped the benefits of that line of work. See, common sense tells you that there's going to be benefits to your unique job. Next, Paul's going to take his argument to Scripture, picking up in verse 8. Do I say this on human authority? Does, the law, does not the law also say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you should not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is this for oxen that God is concerned? Or does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was indeed written for our sake, for whoever plows should plow in hope, and whoever threshes should thresh in hope of a share in the crop. If we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? If others share this rightful claim of you, do we, do not we still more? It's interesting. If you look up what uh, Paul is quoting there, he's quoting Deuteronomy 25.4. And you can look it up later, but the line is actually sandwiched between two sections that deal with human dignity and rights. And both of them would get us off into tangents on how human dignity and rights uh, are actually fleshed out in Torah. But, but it's funny how this one line sits there that seems to be about, you know, compassion towards animals. The idea is that, no, no, you wouldn't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. You'd expect that the animal would eat its fill while it was doing its job. And if the law provided for animals, surely it would provide for human beings. It is only right for those in ministry, those who, the sowers of the spiritual good, to be appropriately compensated for their work. But Paul still has at least two more arguments to give. But before he does, in the next verse, he actually gives up the reason for his impassioned argument. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Here, Paul has given us again the heart of his argument and the stakes of the game, namely the gospel. Next week, we're going to consider with uh, this passage, we're going to continue with this passage and explore just why Paul has chosen to reject the rights for which he had just argued. But for now, there is actually two more hard-hitting arguments for why Paul believes that ministry is a paid gig, or at least should be a paid gig, all things considered, all things being equal. And first, he's going to make this comment about how those who are employed in the temple share in the food of that ministry. 
Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is sacrificed at the altar. Um, so Paul uh, has now used arguments via ordinary practices of Christian leaders, common sense, spiritual precedent, scriptural precedent, and now he's using religious custom. It was common religious custom for priests to make a living and to get their food from being a priest. Think about how this connects with themes earlier in 1 Corinthians. How has Paul talked about temple already in 1 Corinthians? Twice in the letter, he's referred to the Christian body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. He reminded them of that first, first collectively in chapter 3, and then individually in chapter 6. As you give way to the Holy Spirit to live through you, it stands to reason that you will reap the benefits. In the moment, it might feel like it's costing you something, but ultimately, as the gospel is expanded, because that's our goal, and God builds for his kingdom through his people, you cannot help but benefit from it. Perhaps in an immediate way, as like in those who are actually employed you know, by the church, but more importantly, we see that as the Holy Spirit works through us, we are better for it. And in that light, and in that light we, uh, we can do that regardless of where we work. But Paul has one more argument to make in regards to why, on normal circumstances, he would accept payment for his services as an apostle. In chapter, in uh, verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Matthew tells us that Jesus said laborers deserve their food. In Luke, Jesus says, laborers deserve to be paid. In the latter passage, the context of which is where Jesus was sending out the 70 uh, in pairs, sending them out ahead of him uh, in pairs. And he told them that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he told them that he was sending them out like, like lambs in the midst of wolves to declare God's peace and to offer care for the sick and to announce the kingdom of God. And he said it was dangerous work, and he warned that, that not everyone would receive this message that they had, but they should stay with those who did, because the laborer deserves to be paid. And this was the knockdown argument, the la- knockdown punch for Paul's argument in Corinth. All signs point to the truth that apostles deserve to be paid. Ordinary leadership practices showed it. Common sense showed it. Scripture showed it. Religious custom showed it. And if that wasn't enough for you, Jesus himself commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Because of all these arguments, it should be, this should have woken the Corinthian church up when Paul told them that he has chosen not to accept payment. And that he has decided to make his living another way. And next week we're going to talk about how Paul made a living and we're going to talk about how the, in the culture of the day, um, how that fleshed out. But for now, the thing that we need to know is that the reason behind it is because Paul was so utterly committed to making sure that the church in Corinth knew um, that there was no os- obstacle between them and the gospel. He wanted to make sure that they knew crystal clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely free. 
That's something that the church in Corinth needed to hear, and that's something that we need to hear. Too often, we make this faith a legalistic faith. We look to the things, what must I do? What, what, what good thing must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus just says, follow me. I've fulfilled the law and the prophets. Follow me. I'm your righteousness. Follow me. And that's what we're going to consider next week. So stay tuned. This was just part one. But for now, I just want us to rest in that idea that the gospel is absolutely free. And why did Paul make that choice? Because he was wrestling with the question, what did love require of him? Let's pray. Father, your faithfulness to our congregation, to our families, to our students, blows me away. The amount of times that I have personally turned away from you, that I've chosen to do things the way that I want to do them and not the way that you would have me do them, when I have attempted to reject the Holy Spirit's work through me, and I've said, no, 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 I'll do, I'll do it my way for now. Father, I am just blown away at your continued faithfulness. And I just pray that in this congregation here assembled, that we would consider afresh this question of what does love require from us. Sure, in Paul's context, in first century Corinth, he said, you know what, I I want to make sure that, that money doesn't get in the way between the gospel and you and my proclamation of the gospel. And that was a choice that he made, but the heart of that is for us to consider what is the choice that we need to make to live into his love today, to live into the faithfulness that you have shown us. I just pray for all those uh, here that um, if we're struggling through something, tr- struggling through how, how we might decide um, how we might discern, you know, what love, what is that requirement. I pray that we as a community would gather around each other, that we would bring the, our fears up, we would bring our, 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 our passions up in our house churches and here on Sunday morning, that we would share that as a community, that we would get into each other's lives. Father, I just pray that we would be a community church that can help each other and encourage each other and help each other see what love requires from New Hope Community Church. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.